Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From pitch side to print to the press box above Providence Park. It's Jamie Goldberg from the Oregonian and Richard Farley from the Portland Timbers and Thorns. This is Soccer Made in Portland. On the scene, all the time. Welcome everyone to Soccer Made in Portland. Richard and I are out at the Timbers training facility right now. Um, for some reason, there's, a, I think, a race car outside. Uh, they, I think <laughs> people are going to hear this in the background of some of the videos and the media availability it's a today. very disturbing so, turn so, of events for you today. Yeah. As far as I could tell, no players are in the race car, so that's good. You want to good. tell the story about you trying to interview <laughs> De, uh, Valerian? Yeah, no, we, I tried to interview Diego Valerian, and most of it is just the revving of an engine in the background. Um, are you going to actually post that to the Oregonians <laughs> I'm YouTube? I'm thinking about it. You I, need, I need to listen to it, but I would like you know people to hear what you said yeah. just might put the caveat just so you know race car in the background <laughs> it's good just to see how diego reacts to the race car because he realizes like this is a little bit insane yeah, the interview just like, stops for a second as everybody like, what is going on yeah. yeah we're telling geo they should send the race car out to toronto and offer free rides it was so ludicrous <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have been funny hey michael bradley do you want to try driving a race car i'm sure it's good for your health it was it was just ludicrous though yeah. because for people that don't know about the training center in beaverton it's just a bunch of fields next to what used to be a warehouse or like I mean, it's not even a warehouse is more just like an auto yard and to have an Indy car at 7,000 horsepower blaring its engine out here is just totally yeah. inappropriate. It it's was, inappropriate. <laughs> it, it was strange. I guess it was some sort of promotion the Timbers are doing. So we'll see what this turns into, but <laughs> <laughs> I think it was actually MLS. Cause I don't think, okay. well, I, I shouldn't speak to this, but <laughs> I find it hard to believe that the Timbers would be like, Oh, this is a good idea. Let's have this race car out in rural Beaverton. <laughs> <laughs> this will be great. But maybe, maybe there's going to be some awesome digital content. Yeah, maybe, from this. maybe we're just making fun of the best uh, MLS advertisement that's ever been made. Or maybe we're doing their work for them because now people are going to be like, why is there a race car? Oh, there's a race up at Portland. What is it called? That's Portland Downs or something like that in the north part of the city. I always sure. thought it was, a, I thought it was uh, horses that raced up there when I first moved here. Oh, is it not? It, there, it, there, well, there are there horses, a, aren't there? Is somewhere? it both? I don't know. It's probably both, right? <laughs> I don't know. Oh my god! All is it a side of Portland? I do not know very well. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. We're gonna get the responses to this podcast are gonna be amazing. The people that were questioning you about not knowing New Order, they're gonna question both of us for not knowing enough about Portland. Yeah, absolutely. these California people come up here, <laughs> they don't even try to learn our racing culture. I'm tired of them. <laughs> Anyways, there there was soccer. There there was soccer this weekend. So um, let's let's move out of the racing and uh, racing in Portland segment and on to the um, also another you know 
<laughs> not the happiest Timbers discussion that we're going to get into, but uh, let's let's talk about the Seattle game. Yeah, happier than last week, at least. We have some positives to talk about this yes, time. Whereas there, there the, are positives, and there was only one game. Right. So. Off of the D.C. <laughs> and Kansas lost. City games, it was just like, how negative are we really going to be today? Do we want to depress ourselves for the whole week based on this podcast? And there was a very thick silver lining to a scenario that was not very silver lining. You know, yeah. I mean, losing at home to Seattle one to nothing fourth loss in a row drop out of the playoff picture and now i would say there's like an eight percent chance of retaining cascadia cup i mean you're in a situation where you're hoping vancouver beats seattle you have to beat vancouver you've got to get the goal difference scenarios going your way it's it's cascadia cup's probably gone yeah and uh you know longest losing streak since 2012 and no one wants to remember that season no i I don't even remember but the tifo was good (laughs) the tifo was great yeah it was it was very creepy but it was great that's that's the reaction i was getting most on my timeline people suggesting that it was nightmare inducing and yeah that's the point yeah um so anyways going into the result seattle obviously wins one to nothing on a Julio Gascante own goal. Uh, my prediction was wrong. Uh, I predicted a 2-2 draw. Um, that is not what happened. There was not nearly that much goal scoring, and yeah. I think the Timbers would have been happier with a draw. And they were, go- well, definitely I don't happier think, with yeah, a draw. I think, the, I think the draw element was sort of how the game was playing out. But uh, Yeah, <laughs> it seemed like for almost all this game, they at least had a draw yeah. in their hands. Um, and then we'll get to it, a goal where a series of unfortunate events happens. You know, it's typically an unfortunate event every time you score yourself because you're unduly hard. And well, yeah, it's your back. turn this week. It is? So, well, yeah. I'm going to make up for that because you should get zero points for this. <laughs> but last week, you withheld three points for yourself that I really thought you should have. I'm going to meet you halfway. I'm going to give you one and a half points for this prediction. All right. <laughs> Just because, look, I think you should have had three extra points next week. I'm not sure I was correct. I'm not sure you were correct. I'm going to meet you in the middle. I'm going to give you 1.5 points because I said Christian Roldan would score a goal. That was my side bet. I really should get negative points for this for even betting on a sounder <laughs> scoring a goal. Not that, you know, intellectually I feel bad about that, but read the room. We're on a, we're on a Timbers <laughs> podcast here. So I'm going to give myself zero points, but I think I should be docked some points on <laughs> the other half of these because I actually did make some decent Thorn side bets this week. But that's the second half of the show. Let's talk about Seattle. I don't, where do you want to start first? Yeah, I, I mean, let's, I, I think, talk about the performance um, and, and what went, you kind of listed there, what went wrong, what went, what went right. Uh, I think going into it, you, you, see, you see how the Timbers were playing in the first half. You see really how the Timbers were playing up until the, right before the 75th minute when, when Cascante's own goal happens. Um, I, I think this is the response you want, we wanted to see from the Timbers after a bad three games in yeah. eight days, um, two poor performances against D.C. and Sporting Kansas City. I think they rebounded. They created chances, 22-6 to six, um, shots in terms of out-shooting Seattle. The Sounders really didn't create anything in the attack. There, there no. was no danger uh, until that goal happened. I, I think the best chance they created was actually after they scored and Raul Rui Diaz was able to turn on yeah. a volley and not really come close with it, but he was open just above the penalty spot. I mean, before that, they were not only relying on a Julio Cascante own goal, but three three parts of that play that you just look at and go, geez, like the Timbers, it's just a bad situation that happened. And I'm not really even sure it's any fault of the players or fault of the coaches. It's like a guy comes up injured and another guy is tired. And another guy ends up in no man's land because those two guys can't contain the play. And then Kim Kee, drives a ball to Julio Cascante that just, I mean, when you're a defender in that situation, it's just such a tough 
play. I mean, he's shifting his weight. He's trying to get back. It catches him where all of his weight's on one foot. He can't just kick the ball with that foot. That's not how human balance works. So it's just a really tough situation. I, I, Gio, uh, Giovanni Savarese, let's at least use his full name on first reference here. <laughs> let's not act too familiar. But I think we all saw his emotion in the press conference afterward. And I think it was probably like 25% of the emotion that the team was actually feeling. It was just so tough for them. But I mean, I, I think we do need to talk about the negatives in this game. And for yeah. me, it comes down to three things. Um, we can talk more about the execution on the Seattle goal. I think it's a really interesting goal. And I think it just shows you that for all the preparation and 89 minutes of execution that you can have, sometimes things just pile up and go wrong. And in soccer, usually you need two or three things to pile up to go wrong. But I also think the lack of finishing, Absolutely. the lack of, <laughs> it's not even the lack of finishing because there was a graphic going around on Twitter that was like, okay, the Timbers only generated 0. 0.8, 0. 0.9 expected goals and Seattle generated 0. 0.5. Well, the problem with expected goals is that you don't actually register an expected goal unless you get a shot off or you get a shot on, on uh, yeah, you get a shot off. Some of the Timbers' chances just didn't even get a shot off. The, I think it was the 31st-minute counterattack that ended with Diego Chirac kind of a backheel layoff to Samuel Armenteros. That didn't get a shot off at all, but if Armenteros takes a different line to the ball or Chirac's layoff is in a different place, that's almost surely a goal. I mean, that's like a .75 expected goal scenario that they created there that doesn't show up in expected goals at all because no shot was taken. So I think that the Timbers did generate a lot of good chances. Like in the first half, Ozzy Alonso has to come and clear a ball at the edge of the six. I think there's another time where Christian Roldan has to come in and clear a ball into touch. At the same time, this is something that you guys, you guys, meaning you and Chris, mostly Chris Reifer, are um, posthumous. Supposedly hosts. a fan, yeah, not, fan. A, not a reporter. But, um, <laughs> but also just like the fans picked up on it early and, you know, the Timbers are trading Fernando Adi. What's going to happen? I'm sorry I'm talking so long here. I'll hand it off to you in a second. But my analogy that I've always used is like they've got five darts to throw at the board here between Jeremy Obobese, Foster Langsdorf, Lucas Milano, Dyron Espria, and Tomas Konechny. They haven't hit the board yet with any of those. And so that's a problem. Yeah, I mean, and we haven't even had a chance to see Langsdorf and Obobese. And obviously, as you've talked about, I mean, Savarese is not someone that just leaves some players out of the 18 that he thinks are good enough to play. Something's going on in training where he doesn't feel like they're ready. But it's problematic when you have one attacking sub on the bench. I mean, this is what I think I've been talking about for the last few weeks. If they're going to come to a point where they desperately need a goal late in the game and they're not going to have the subs to do it. And this this was the perfect example of that. They bring in Aspria, who is their one attacking sub, but it's also not scored except on a penalty kick this year. And then they bring in Guzman and... Um, uh, Flores. Yeah, Flores uh, for Polo. <laughs> I mean, Flores for Polo was something that was going to happen because I think they wanted Flores in the game earlier because Polo was gassed. Um, and obviously, Espria, Espria's card was already handed to the fourth official by the time the goal happened because Sebastian Blanco's groin had acted up. Uh, but I'm 100% agree with you. When I saw that 18 and saw there was only one attacking option on it, immediately I'm like, this takes the whole forward conversation to not only another level but puts it in a different context we have to talk about why these players aren't being picked because it's one thing to say okay Jeremy Obobese isn't getting time Foster Langsdorf isn't getting time why is that it's another thing when they're not even in the 18 Uh, to me that's a totally different conversation yeah, and it's when when they desperately need another attacking player there. They're actively choosing not to include either of those players. And so Langsdorf is clearly getting the job done at T2, but there seems to be some sort of gap in the way he's training with the first team or something. I, I mean, something we don't fully 
recognize because we're not there every single day with closed practices and stuff. Yeah. At least I'm not. No. <laughs> but it's 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 baffling at this point to what's what's going on and it something needs to change whether that's milano coming in and actually providing some sort of spark off the bench yeah or the timbers getting a boba sea and langstorff to a point where they can contribute to finding a way that they can push them along maybe that's not going to happen but if it doesn't i just don't see how this team's going to be able to produce enough goals and put themselves in the opportunities they need to in the attack when they're maybe down a goal in game i just don't see enough firepower right now to carry this team through the rest of the season as i've explained to before on this podcast and i definitely see why people are arguing the other way because i think this is not a clear answer type of issue i don't think that you can definitively say any of the forwards are ready to pass Dyron or ready to fill fernando adi's shoes but beyond that, I think we can all agree that beyond Armenteros on the depth chart, there's this huge void. And it's a void that I'm not sure how many points it has cost the Timbers to this point. And you'll never be sure. It's a hypothetical. But it's certainly a void that nobody wants to be there. And when we're in situations like, when we're watching situations like Sundays, you have to wonder what what's going on here that they haven't given themselves other options. Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing I want to hit before we, we move on is a ritual, obviously coming back in Ridgey. Yes. Uh, first time since May 19th, obviously Mabial was out. Uh, mm-hmm. saw Rusty said today that Mabial and Blanco are both fit. We'll yeah. see what that means for, um, tomorrow's lineup, but, um, Ridgewell's back in for the first time since May 19th. And, I I was pretty excited to see that. I think that defense, even though, again, in this game, we see an error that leads to a goal, a tough one, um, I think uh, I was more avoidable. And, and I think Cascante could have done better, I think maybe more than you feel like, um, based on just talking about the position he was put in. I, I think he has to do better on that situation, um, even if it's maybe a little bit of a tough spot. But that goal... Aside, I, I mean, I think Ridgewell coming back in, I think overall the defense played well, and I, I think it could be a boost for a, a defense that started to show some cracks in recent weeks. I think Liam Ridgewell has had one bad game this year, yeah. and it was the New York game. I thought he was maybe the team's best defender in the Galaxy game before that. When he came back into the team, we saw just the level of organization and calm and control that they had. I even think uh, this weekend when the Timbers in the second half had to possess so often, having somebody with Liam Ridgewell's skill set back there is a big boost, I think. So I wouldn't be surprised if he is now back in the first 11 at this point. To the extent he was out of the first 11 and why, I think people know that he's had various things going on in his life I mean, beyond the injury that people saw that cost him his starting spot last time. He's had an addition to his family. And there's clearly something else that's going on that's keeping Lim Ridgewell from consistently being a first 11 player but he's a first 11 player now and I would expect that to be based on what we've seen from Giovanni Savarusi selections be the case until something else changes and I think that's a positive for the team and I, th- I think this is a good opportunity assuming Malbiala is at a point where he can come back in to give Julio Cascante a break um, not that I, I think Julio Cascante is still a good option for the Timbers in the long term he's young he's shown well but he is these mistakes, little mistakes are building up and they've been costly. And I, I think it's just an opportunity if Savaresi can play Mabial and Ridgewell to just kind of give him a reset, a chance yeah. to move on, say that, you know, we still believe in you, but let's just regroup and, and take a take a few games off. I, I completely agree with you. I mean, like you said, I'm not going to sit here and try to convince people that what happened Sunday wasn't a mistake by Mabial, by Cascante. I 100% don't think 
it was something that he's going to be able to prevent. I 100% don't think it's something that 99% of central defenders in the world are able to prevent. You're talking about asking somebody to make an elite level of skill and athletic play. Could that happen? Yeah. Tell me the player that's going to do that, because I think even somebody like Jerome Bontang or Vincent Company allows that goal every once in a while. That being said, it's not the only mistake that we've seen Julio Cascante make over the last couple months. I think those mistakes have gone a long way to putting him in a better position to contribute to the Timbers for years going forward. But you don't always want to be making that trade-off week in and week out. And I think this is a good opportunity to see what the first-choice center back during preseason to the first two games of the season can do back together. Yeah. Just looking at it overall, I guess, at this four-game free fall, uh, I mean, I, we got a few questions about this. Tony asked, how do, how do they turn it around? How do they turn this around, and how do we sort of evaluate this? I, I'd be interested in your answers more than mine on that one. Do you have a theory about that? I mean, I, I think that, the, as I talked about last week, they mismanaged the three-game and eight-day stretch, um, and I, I think that hurt them. I, I think the last two games were not good. I, by the time they played Kansas City, I don't think they had a lineup out there that was going to be successful, and they obviously didn't have the performance they wanted against D.C. United. I think, as we've talked about already today, um, the lack of proven goal scores in the attack that are getting the job done right now is a problem they've been shut down the last two games they've struggled to score from open play recently and there's been cracks in the defense we've had players like Cascante making errors even if overall the defense has been for the most part okay there's been bit these big errors every game one one or two seems to be piling up and so I, I think th- those things happening at the same time is really problematic when when you're attack isn't sort of carrying the team by scoring the goals and the defense is making an error or game and maybe allowing a goal they shouldn't you're going to lose games so I think the Timbers showed in Sunday's game that they can be a team that can still be successful this isn't it's time to write the season off I think there's still real questions about how this attack is going to do but with Ridgewell coming back in with when Mobial is healthy I think the defense is going has the potential to be what the Timbers need it to be and they certainly have attacking weapons if Blanco or Larry or Armenteros takes off and gets in a little um, run of a stretch of games where they're scoring consistently mm-hmm. uh, so, and I think that's just kind of what they need they just need a solid defensive performance where they don't uh, make any big mistakes and, and they need some of those attack Attacking players to step up and just get them to an opportunity to rebound and, and take some confidence from that and, and build some momentum. If I am Giovanni Savarese and his staff and I look back on Sunday's game, I'm 0% worried about the defense. If I look beyond that, I'm more than 0% worried. But when you're talking about what you have to focus on going forward, you look at Sunday's game and say, defend like that. I'd be more worried that you, have, you face an opponent that's going to try to attack you more, have a better attacking plan than Seattle did because Seattle didn't offer anything. <laughs> But as far as what the defense was asked to do, there was just one sequence of three passes that was contributed to by a player being injured and not being able to get out of the game, a player being fatigued, being out of position. Those two players putting a left back in a bad position where he couldn't, he had too many options to choose from, and then a ball driven across the area, which, I mean, once Kim is in that place and can hit a ball that hard into chaos, sometimes chaos produces that. So I'm not too worried about the defense right now. I'm severely worried about the attack. And and we can go over it again and again. But the simple fact is that this team doesn't have a lot of options that are going to create offense by themselves. We thought Arintos could be that guy. It's been a while now since he created a goal for himself. Even the goal he has scored during this stretch, he hit it straight at Bill Hamid. Diego Valeri, not at last year's level, 
would be too much to ask of him to be at that level, but not somebody that's going to, right now, you'd expect to take over games on a regular basis. Sebastian Blanco, not producing the same numbers he did over the first six or eight weeks of the season. These are all very good players. But the problem is beyond that, if those players are occupying defense's attentions like this weekend where the Blanco and Valeri have the constant attention of Ozzy Alonso and Gustav Svensson, and Samuel Armenteros has to go against both Chad Marshall and Kim Kee-hee, is Andy Polo going to step up? Is Diego Chara going to step up? Who's going to step up? And when you look at the team right now, the answer is there's no history suggests that any of these players are going to step up. Savarisi and the players have to write that history now, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. And as I think tweeted out last week, I mean, you named the three guys that have scored from open play this year. Um, beyond that, just Alvis Powell once. And so, yeah. Yep. If, if it's not those three players, the Timbers have a lot to prove on who else it's going to be. Absolutely. Uh, so let's go on and talk a little bit about tomorrow's game or today's game as people are listening to this podcast, Toronto FC. You know, the scary part here is that Toronto is in almost the, ex- almost the exact same situation that Seattle was coming into this game on Sunday. They're coming into Portland off a bad first half of the season, and they're starting to turn it around. Toronto has 10 points in their last six games, still ninth in the Eastern Conference, so they're not as hot, and they're not in as good a position as Seattle was, but we know the talent of this Toronto team. There's a reason why they've been to two straight finals and that they're reigning champions in the league. My questions about Toronto that we can't answer is how strong are they going to be? They obviously are dealing with the same kind of time constraints as the Timbers. But for the Timbers, how important is this game? You know, you've got a difficult game on Saturday, traveling cost country to New England, not as good a team, but the circumstances behind that game are going to be much more difficult. If you don't win this one, not only have you lost five in a row, but I mean, where does the losing streak stop? This seems like a perfect time to stop the losing streak. And at the same time, what reason do we have to think that the Timbers are going to come through? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's fair to characterize any game at this point in the season as a must-win, but this is the kind of game that if they lose again, this is how your team starts spiraling down downward and can't get out of it. Um, they have to snap this losing streak, and they have to snap it quickly. Uh, I think that given the last stretch of games on the last compacted schedule, we know that I think Sarvarasi is going to approach this week maybe a little bit differently, and, and it'll be interesting to see how he approaches it in terms of his, his rotations. But I think that it would make a lot of sense for him to keep close to his top lineup in this game and maybe sacrifice a little bit in the New England game. This game's at home. Mm-hmm. This is, a, a, like you said, a game they really need to put their best foot forward and find a way to get a win. Toronto is surging. Giovinco has been a huge part of that. And it's going to be, assuming they don't rotate their lineup too much, is going to be a big part of what the Timbers have to stop. Uh, yeah, I think the Timbers go with close to their top lineup in this game if they can and, and try to build off the Seattle performance and see if they can just find a way to turn those chances into some goal-scoring production. To me, I, and this is what I realized in the wake of DC United, that result, because obviously once that performance was unfolding, people really started to question the lack of rotation of that 11, um, saying that you should have just rotated the team and saved the best players for this weekend because of travel, short rest, et cetera, et cetera. But also Western Conference opponent versus Eastern Conference opponent. I'm intentionally omitting that at this point. Uh, Those kind of factors are so much less important than just making sure your team is continuing to play well at this point in the season, continue to make progress, just accumulate the points where you can, maybe towards the end of the season. But I'm... I. I kind of subscribe to you face the opponent in front of you at this point in the season. It's a longer arc. But the one thing that nobody ever mentions is that, you know, 
they intend to approach it like like you just did. Okay, in theory, this is how I would approach this. I would save my players for this scenario or this. The overriding consideration is the player's health. That's absolutely the number one concern here. Who can actually make this physically turn around? You look at the bio data. You look at the wear and tear they've accumulated over the year. You look at their injury history. You look at their injury present. There are some people in the team that might be more susceptible to muscle injuries on two or three days turnaround. And for obvious reasons, we don't have that information. I don't have that information. But when we're talking about, okay, who should be saved for which event, you can only answer that question after you know who can actually do it or not. So I think that will end up being the number one consideration over anything. Now, the difficult thing is that how do you actually, and this is something from being on this side of the curtain that I'm realizing, how do you actually get an honest answer out of a team about that? Because they're going to be very reluctant to tell you about health information. Even more reluctant than tell you about the decision-making process as to why Jeremy Abobasi or Foster Langsdorf aren't in the team. And it really puts fans in a weird situation because they always have to make conclusions based on incomplete information. And I'm only now appreciating that, that there's this passion that people have to follow their teams and understand their teams and want the best for their teams that can never match the information that they're given. Even when you have somebody like Jamie Goldberg covering the beat, even when you have an in-house reporter covering things, it's just a really, really strange phenomenon that I'm just getting my head around. But I think as it affects their, uh, Wednesday's game, you're going to see some decisions made that are probably based on health, and we probably will never exactly know what those decisions are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think think that's a good point as well. We'll see uh, what the lineup looks like tomorrow. I, I definitely believe whether it's tomorrow or Saturday, there will have to be rotations in this week. And I think Savresi is going to have to learn from that performance against DC United. And I think that pointing that out as a sort of an example yeah. of how him trying to push a bunch of players on a few days rest didn't pan out. Yeah, it and is a fair I, point. I think that's what he's alluding to when he says we needed to have some information. And this is what I was thinking about last week during that time where he kept saying, you know, I got information. We did this because I needed to test some things. There's always a cost to knowledge, whether it's your time, whether it's actual money, whether it's having to set up experiments. And I think Timbers essentially set up an experiment when they were on the road. At some point, we need to find out w- which players can turn around under certain circumstances. And even if it fails, we have essentially bought that knowledge to apply to these other scenarios down the road. Again, the problem is, though, is getting them to admit that's actually what they yeah. were doing. But at least you can see that as kind of a theoretical framework for why it happens. Now, for me, I don't think that makes it any easier on the fans. You're telling fans, hey, um, we just kind of did this thing over this last week. I mean, <laughs> I hope you understand what thing was it. Ah, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. But I think when we're talking about these things, these are the scenarios we have to at least consider. Yeah. Looking into New England, I don't think there's too much to preview at this point. I think a lot of it's going to have to depend. It's going to depend on what happens uh, yeah. in tomorrow's game. Our favorite so, thing on the show, doing a um, Tuesday podcast yeah. and talking about games two days away. So obviously it's travel, short rest, bad turf. Terrible um, turf, worst turf in the league. Yeah, so all things that they have to consider. Um, and I think that'll factor into the rotations. But it's going to depend a lot on who plays tomorrow. And I think also, and I don't know if this is going to be the case on Saturday, but Brad Friedel has set up his team to be a pressing team this year. And even in the New York Red Bull game earlier this year where we saw they had a whole week's prep, but it was going away to the East Coast. Uh, the team hadn't really come together yet. And a team that was organized and pressing really made the Timbers look bad that game. So there is some danger here that goes beyond New England's record. But at the same time, and we can talk about this later when we do predictions, I think there's some opportunity here that goes beyond just the short rest travel turf scenario. Mm-hmm. 
Listener questions. Let me throw one at you. Let's go with Jonathan here first. Jonathan <laughs> asks kind of an existential question, a philosophical one. How have we landed in a universe where the union's last loss <laughs> and the timber's last win came at the same time? Jonathan, I know who this is. This is a very uh, centered perspective on the union's universe. That's how we landed here, Jonathan. This is you, your, your universe that we yeah. uh, got pulled into. But it does highlight where the Timbers are because I personally don't think the union are a good team. No, and I don't think this is going to keep up. <laughs> no, I don't think it's going to keep up either. But the fact that the Timbers are here relative to the union shows you how bad this stretch is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I, I think Jonathan should just, you know, appreciate it for the moment yeah. <laughs> since, since he covers the team. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Savor your universe now, Jonathan, because history shows that universe is going to collapse. Burgo asks just how many goals does Langsdorf have to score? I assume he means at T2, uh, before he even makes the bench for the Timbers. Yeah. I mean, I have a, a long drawn out, Hey, this is what they're looking at explanation that is going to sound like apologizing for the team. So I'd rather give that disclaimer and recognize that and then hear what you have to say first. Yeah, I mean, it's puzzling from an outside perspective when you're not there every day to understand why Langsdorf isn't being given an opportunity. I mean, Savarese alluded to it today that T2 is a different level and we got to make sure that they were putting players that are competing, uh, you know, doing well in training against the first team. And it's it has to come down to that. I'm, I'm not sure exactly what he said, but I think that was the gist of what he was going for. It comes down to however Langsdorf is performing against this group, and, and it's things we're not seeing. But but mm-hmm. it is. I, I mean, I I, under, I feel the frustration when you have one attacking sub on the bench. Just give this guy an opportunity. He's lighting up USL, and so it, it's a tough one that when we don't see what's going on and why Savaresti is making this decision, it, it it's tough to understand. I completely agree. I think one thing that I find interesting about focusing on Langsdorf and how well he's doing is he hasn't even been T2's best player. So if you're going to sit here and go, Foster Langsdorf is doing so well, how come he's not getting a chance? It really comes down to how you feel about the forward situation because if it was about T2 performance, you would be arguing for Marvin Loria first. Based on the roster. You can can sign him at any point. They have people they can loan down to T2 at any time. You would be talking about Renzo Zambrano and maybe you'd be talking about Kendall McIntosh. Now, obviously, all of those players are being blocked or don't have a fit. So this is really about how you're feeling about the forward situation and that makes perfect perfect sense but it also goes back to this unknowable thing like you were just alluding to like foster langsdorf is performing at this level but how is he actually performing when you're seeing like-to-like scenarios in practice i think at some point it's incumbent on people to explain that like obviously on this show we talk about it almost every week as if this is a viable situation that makes sense all right but somebody has to actually tell us that that's what's happening and um it makes sense that Giovanni doesn't come out Giovanni Savarese doesn't come out and say yeah this guy stunk in practice I mean you didn't see it but he was terrible <laughs> he's never going to say that but we have to keep in our mind that that's a possibility I think the other thing too is that we have to look at T2 as if it is a prep ground it makes total sense to look at these players performances and ask why aren't they playing at the first team because that's what T2 is for it's for giving players, eventually academy players, but also people like Marvin Loria and Derek Buelto who get signed, a place to show that they can play at the next level. And that applies to Foster Langsdorf, too. You know, I think one thing that ju- stood out today about Langsdorf when Giovanni Savarese was talking to us today, he alluded to the fact that not only is T2 a different level, but this is a different life than what he had had before. This is Langsdorf's first year as a professional. Nobody from within the club has ever said this to me. I've never asked Giovanni Savarese about this, but it is completely understandable to me that he wants Foster Langsdorf to experience a year of consistency now that he's made this transition to being a pro and then see what happens. 
of course, that doesn't help the first team. Yeah. <laughs> um, Wes asks, uh, I think in a similar vein a little bit, with, with Williamson off to Portugal, obviously Eric Williamson was loaned out today. Uh, do you think that the lack of his first team, him having a first team role aided to his decision to go on loan? And should fans worry that they're going, the team's going to lose more of our strong T2 performers to, um, due to a lack of first team role? <laughs> do you want to go first here? Cause I feel like I'm going to be in the annoying person that picks apart this question. Cause there, are, there are two things implicit in this. I'm just going to go. There are two things implicit in this question that I, I want to clarify first. Um, the first is, um, his decision it's if the team didn't want him to go out on loan he wouldn't be out on loan the team is doing this maybe to appease the player but maybe because this is a good opportunity to go play with a first division team in a top six or seven european league and it's more experience than they can offer at the first team here right now and there's no doubt about that you look at the central midfield depth chart for the timbers it does not work in eric's favor the same way the forward depth chart works in jeremy Bobasi and foster langsor's favor so that's the difference in conversations out obviously the other thing here they ask should we be worrying about losing players he didn't lose him he got an opportunity to recall him in this winter if he plays well he's going to get recalled there's no way the timbers are going to go you're playing so well it's a shame we lost you no They've set this up to where this can be valuable experience for Eric. I think the truth about Eric is that he was stuck between two worlds. He was a little bit beyond T2 as far as his skill level, but he wasn't capable of cracking 18. So a solution had to be found for him, I think. And this is the solution. That's That's my take on it, at least. Yeah, I don't mind seeing a player like Williamson go on loan in this sense because I, I do think he's going to get better um, minutes mm-hmm. at a higher level, and I, I think that's a good thing. Um, I think implicit in this question is what 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 are the Timbers doing at T two to some degree? When are these player? When are we going to see these players that are performing well get the opportunities at the first team? And that comes back to our same question about Abobasi and Langsdorf. I think Williamson is a harder one to talk about when we're when we're looking at that because like you said, the depth chart in central midfield is very different. Um, but it, it would be nice to, to hear a, you know, an in-depth answer from the club about why we're making these decisions. Why are these players not reaching this level? And what's it going to take to get some of these T2 players to break into the first team and stay with the first team ultimately? It, in the long run, that should be the goal. I mean, we see other teams you know, building out the young players and turning them into big-time MLS contributors, yeah. at least everyday starters, the Timbers do still have to get to that point, and they still have a lot to prove that they're get, going to get to that point. I absolutely agree with that. I think everybody within the Timbers recognizes that, and they also think it's a concern. They want to improve the academy. They want to improve the U.S. talent coming through. Obviously, we've seen it on Twitter. Merritt Paulson is very proud of the fact that the Timbers helped develop Darlington Nagby or helped finish him off. Uh, the Timbers were very important in getting Jorge Villafaña to the level where he can compete for a U.S. national team spot. So it's not like... It's not like the organization doesn't care about those things, but the simple fact is the academy is young and needs to get better. Uh, T2 is young and needs to get better. And there just aren't players right now that are capable of challenging for first team spots. But Marco Farfan is not that far away. Foster Langsdorf is not that far away. And I just think a lot of the conversation we hear about these things don't recognize the fact that the Red Bulls, the Red Bulls have 20-some years of run-up to where they've been able to produce a Tyler Adams. The Timbers aren't there yet. They know that. They shouldn't be expected to be either. What we should expect from them is progress. And I think if you look at the organizational depth chart last year compared to this year, there's undeniable progress. Now, we should expect the same thing a year from now, more progress. Yeah. Um, I, I think going – should we hit one more question or Let's two more it. questions? You, you pick a question. Okay. 
Um, Jamie, I'm going to hold you to this one because I think you're going to try to duck the question. But flat cap goalkeeper <laughs> Sinclair asks, do you have any suggestions to thicken a homemade cherry jelly, a cherry jelly to make it a true dram jam rather than a runny goo? See, I think this is actually a true question because I think there's an actual answer to this. I think flat cap goalkeeper is testing us. Like posing this as an innocuous question, but really like everybody should know this. So let's ask Richard and Jamie if they do. I think it's just a good, I, we got a few questions that were just not Timbers related or Thorns related. Maybe people on the Thorns side, actually, I think we should have gotten way more questions. Yeah. I mean, with a lot of excitement, but on the Timbers side, I can uh, sort of understand the want to just talk about <laughs> jam and jelly instead. Um, What's the difference between a jam and a jelly, first of all? We actually had a conversation with with Reifer, with Reifer on this podcast about the difference between jam, jelly, and uh, uh, marmalade. I don't know. Okay. (laughs) Preserves? Preserves. That's the word. And honestly, I... uh, Is this something Chris knew? I feel like he had a very clear answer to it. Chris with a clear answer, huh? Yeah. So Chris apparently goes in the kitchen more than me or yeah. something, cooks, tries to make Or this seems like the kind of like frequently occurring <laughs> trivia, frequently occurring clearly here, where it would be nice bar talk just to know. Yeah. Um, I really don't know what to do in that case. I, I hope you have a better answer, but uh, yeah. I mean, um, this is a subject... Like apparently there there's apparently soccer and sports seems to be my like go to subjects because you take me out of that I feel like my knowledge uh, so is lacking. There are two tried and true ways in the kitchen to thicken anything. Uh, one is flour, yeah, just add flour to it, and the other is blood. <laughs> there's what blood. Okay. <laughs> blood is thicker than water. All right. And thus ends that segment on a creepy well, that was note. Creepy. We started with the creepy tifo and ended with don't don't think it's stuff with blood, please. <laughs> I just wanted I wanted to kill that question just off. But thank you for it. the question, um, flat cap goalkeeper, because the look on Jamie's face when she realized the word that I just said made it all worthwhile. <laughs> Let's move on. Let's transition into Thorns talk, but not before our traditional transitioning segment. The Chris Riffer Memorial Hot Take Interlude. Jamie, do you want to go first? Sure. Okay. Um, I I think that MLS shouldn't have three games in seven days stretches. I understand really? that. Yeah. Wow. It, another, it's quite a hot take. Hot take yeah. um, I understand that three game and eight day stretches might have to happen. I understand compacted schedules might have to happen. And I, while I would like to maybe see changes to the schedule, I understand the constraints MLS is dealing with. Okay. But I, I feel like they should be avoidable. It should be avoidable um, if a team is playing on Sunday night to not have to play again on Saturday, whether that means they oh, yeah, play again on Sunday, whether that means they don't have a Wednesday game. Um, if To have those three games, a Sunday, Wednesday, Saturday game, I just don't see in the schedule and in the constraints of the timeline they need to get through that those get, stretches have to happen. Because this puts the Timbers – I mean, we thought the three-game and eight-day stretch was hard – this is going to be a really, really tough stretch for the Timbers, and they're going to have to go on the road for the end of it all the way in New England. I going Looking at this week and knowing that they have to get off this losing streak, I don't have a lot of confidence going into it, and I, I think at least the teams at MLS deserve that extra day on the end of such a compacted schedule because I, I don't see any reason why MLS can't make it happen. Uh, I was talking to Jeff Attenella after the game on Sunday, and basically asking him hey did the way that you guys play make it a little bit of an easier loss to bear and he was just kind of like no a loss is a loss we 
we looked at the schedule a long time ago. We knew what was happening. And it was only then that I kind of looked at it like, you know, the players probably saw these two stretches of three and seven, three and eight. And they were probably just like, that is ridiculous. And they had to get it through their head at that point. Like Diego Valeri said today, just like, hey, we knew that what this was. We knew what the schedule was. It sucks that they have to put themselves in a situation where they have to convince themselves that going to Gillette Stadium, <laughs> having one day training, playing on the worst turf in the league, I mean, that that's a reasonable thing. But at the same time, it happens. I think we were talking about this pre-show. What, what, one thing that I think people don't appreciate about it is traveling west to east is a lot different than traveling east to west. You lose the hours, basically. That's a big thing, especially in a scenario with a short turnaround where all of those hours matter for either rest or training or video or whatever. To be on the six-hour flight, to spend multiple hours getting to getting settled in your hotel, to lose three hours, to have to prioritize sleeping, just prioritizing sleeping, it's a big thing. It's a bigger thing than I think people realize. Being a West Coast team already stinks because there's more actual space between teams out here. And that only makes it worse. I mean, now that we're talking about this, I kind of think that they should always schedule it so the West East flights, you're done with them by July or something like that. Just get them out of the way, low leverage, as low leverage situations as possible, and then let those West Coast teams go on with their lives. Speaking of going on, I'm going on a bit. I'm going to have another medium hot take. I don't even think this is a hot take, but I was looking at the standings a couple of weeks ago, and I was noticing that the league, well... I've, I've been telling people all year that the Western Conference is weak because you see teams like, I don't really think RSL is that good of a team and they're in the top half of the conference. I don't think the Galaxy are that good of a team. When the Timbers were struggling or they weren't really that impressive in the middle of their 15-game unbeaten run, they were climbing. I was like, wow, the West must be really weak this year. And Seattle, they climbed it quickly. And then I started looking at the East. It's like, no, the East is just as like crappy as the West. I think we're in a situation where the teams that have opted in to the discretionary targeted allocation money were the ones that are consistently paying for the top dollar designated players and not just scraping by on the $600,000 ones. We're seeing the team get the league get more top heavy than ever. We're seeing it harder and harder for teams like RSL who've done a good job of bouncing back after last season, Houston that are going through like a second season syndrome with Wilma Cabrera right now, or even like it wasn't so long ago that New England had stocked up when they acquired Lee Nguyen and Benny Failhaber, and they made a run uh, with Jermaine Jones to the final. We're seeing it harder and harder for those teams, I think, to penetrate the teams at the top of the league, the Torontos, the New Yorks, the Red Bulls are just a really good organization. But even some of the things that the Timbers have had to go, go through this year, the fact that they did bulk up on discretionary TAM and were able to build out this roster, imagine where they would be during this transition if it wasn't for that. So I'm wondering if we're getting into a situation where in a league that prioritized parity so much in its first two decades, that parity is becoming a less and less achievable thing. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that, I, but I don't necessarily think it's bad. Um, I, I think that parity is obviously helpful in um, in trying creating a competitive atmosphere and um, being a situation where any team can beat any team. That's there's something fun about watching that. But at the same time, I, I mean, you look at other leagues, the Parody's teams that blind. buy more buy more and are better teams, and then that pushes other teams hopefully to to also say, well, we can't just be the worst team in the league every year. We have to now spend more too. And I think that's just a factor of a growing league and this. Yeah, it's a place that all teams should strive to be at. And if these teams that decided not to use discretionary TAM are going to be bad for a few years, 
they should recognize that they need to spend more and they need to be up to the level the other teams are. So I don't see it as a bad thing to lose a little bit of that parity uh, and hopefully it will just push more teams forward in the long run and improve the quality of the league. Yeah, I would rather watch a league where 20 to 25% of the teams are awesome and usually within a weekend you know that you can tune into an Atlanta game, a New York game, a Seattle game, a Toronto game, etc., an LAFC game, and you're going to have at least one good team on the field rather than having a league of 23 mediocre teams. And you look across sports. The NBA is more interesting for having the Golden State Warriors and wondering if the Rockets have put together a team to knock them off. The NFL is more interesting sitting there wondering when the Patriots are going to come back to the pack and if the Philadelphia Eagles can do something to knock them off. Uh, And Major League Baseball is more interesting, I think, now, where the Red Sox and Yankees, although they've gone through ups and downs in recent years, are pushing each other and the Red Sox are being pushed to maybe a record-breaking season, holy crap, I know something about baseball, then in the 80s where neither of those teams were relevant very much. The 80s were this decade a long time ago. I don't need to tell you about it. <laughs> hey, but, I was born in the 80s. <laughs> oh, thanks for the I reminder. I was there for like three months. <laughs> oh, my God. Let us change topics now and talk about something a little bit happier for Portland soccer fans, the Portland Thorns, who go into this international break off of a two-win week, albeit a two-win week where we expected them to get six points. Let's start with the Wednesday result at Providence Park. It seems like so long ago, given what's happened in the Timbers and the Thorns world, we'll get to that, but last Wednesday, the Thorns jump out to a 2 nothing lead, eventually defeat Sky Blue 2-1. Jamie, what was your prediction? I predicted a 2-1 to Thorns win. Wow. On the money. Wow. Who's giving out points? You are giving See, out See, the thing points. about this prediction is that I think it goes beyond the 2-1. I think you honestly were envisioning a game that played out, if not exactly like what we saw on Wednesday, at least very similarly in terms of the balance of power. I think you probably thought the Thorns were going to control most of the game, have moments of weakness. I am giving you 23 points for this one. All right. I think there's a there's kind of a ceiling that we have to have on these predictions uh, because they are just score predictions, but that was a really good prediction. So I wanted to give you the highest score I think I've given on a score prediction yet. Now... My side bet was at least one former Sky Blue FC player would score. And there were really only two options. That would be Tobin Heath or Caitlin Fort. And I was betting on people forgetting that Tobin Heath had ever been with Sky Blue, but she was. And she scored a goal. (laughs) I'm not exactly sure really was her goal. I kind of think maybe Lindsay Horan got something on it. It goes down as Tobin Heath's goal. So I am giving myself acknowledging that we actually haven't been giving these side bets when they come good enough points. We're starting to see that in the score. I'm giving myself 39.7 points. Oh my points. God, that is crazy. Oh my God, it's so crazy. It's so <laughs> crazy for one of these side bets that never actually come good to give them a disproportionate amount of points. <laughs> okay, going on to the actual game, we kind of alluded to it, the Thorns in control for almost all of this one, but then give up a very late goal to Sarah Killian. Very nice finish into the side netting almost at the point where it was irrelevant, but there was enough time for Sky Blue to scrape by another one. Either way, the Thorns come off the feeling field, feeling pretty good about their performance. More important than the result, though, is what Jamie Goldberg thinks about this. Jamie, how close did the Thorns get to a very elusive Goldberg 90? <laughs> I mean, obviously they can see the goal, but I, I thought it was a good performance. I, I think that they were in control for most of the game, and it didn't look like Sky Blue was going to come back it just wasn't like the last performances against sky blue i think they definitely took a step forward against an opponent that has given them trouble for some reason throughout the year mm-hmm. they have to be better against better opponents but i i'm not I, I don't think i take a lot of negatives away from this they won the game they were dominant for most of it and, and 
obviously then they go on the road and continue that winning streak. I, I'm, I don't know if there's anything else to add because one sky blue was, came in playing hard. They're a difficult team to beat, but they're also a team that you should beat. The scoreline to me isn't a bad scoreline. Sky Blue is taking points off of other teams in the league. 2-2 would have been a bad scoreline. I think at this point, the way the Thorns got their 2-1 was fine by me. I think more interesting to me is the fact that it isn't fine by other people. What's interesting to me is people disagree with me. No, what's interesting to me is that habitually throughout this year, I think people have held the Thorns to a standard that, quite frankly, the names on the back of their jersey demands. When you see Sinclair and Heath and Haran and Sonnet and Menges and French and Klingenberg, and nah, 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 you think that this team's going to be a world beater. Is that a fair standard? Because we are really at the point where a lot of people, I think, this is mostly around the league. I don't really sense it in market. In market, there are a couple people that are like, oh, the Thorns need to do better. But I think around the league, people are saying that without perspective and kind of expecting the Thorns just to be world beaters. How fair of a standard is that? I think the Thorns have dealt with a lot of adversity this year and haven't really gotten to the point even necessarily now that they're at their very best. I mean, we're starting to see like Tobin Heath. Um, you know, I think she scored in the last maybe three games. Um, I'm, I'm former Sky Blue player. Yes, Tobin former Sky Blue player. If I, I, she, she's starting to score more goals. She's starting to contribute more in the attack. Um, you're seeing these players that have maybe come off injuries um, starting to get to their best soccer. I don't think this team really ever had the opportunity to, to get to the top of where they wanted to be or have the attack come alive to, to have one of those 6-1 wins they maybe had against the Spirit a few years ago. I don't think that team's really gotten to that point, and I don't think they necessarily need to be to that point where they're just dominating teams with their attack. Uh, as long as they're winning games and putting in dominant performances, that's what's important. But I also think this is a team that's still improving, and if there was six more months of the season we would see a different team down the road i also think this team has no appetite to go out and just be crushing teams at this point they've won a shield this core at least has won a shield and won a championship together and obviously a few players have won two championships the idea of going out and being beating a team 6-1 for the sake of beating them 6-1 i think the thorns are perfectly happy to play a game like we saw on saturday where they scored a goal and it's like we don't need to do anything else this team's not going to uh, score a goal against us granted that has hurt them in the past didn't come close to hurting them on saturday but i think they are much happier just going look three points in this game our our rewards are coming down the road and kind of just see a game out so it's not as fun to watch sometimes it's interesting to see how they can kill a game off but i also think it's interesting when you see them in attack right now you see the different character they have when they're building down the left through tobin heath or they're building down the right through whoever is going to be the right winger going forward. You see that this team is developing specific ways in which it likes to use the other players around those points of attack, and you see an actual character coming through. And that's just something that they weren't able to develop when they didn't have a consistent team together. Speaking of inconsistency, let's get to the Saturday game because it was a one nothing win for the Thorns. The Thorns uh, saw this win out in a very controlled fashion. Washington really did not even have a good chance this whole game, but... Let's get to the prediction first so that we can talk about Haley Rosso. You predicted a 2-0 victory for the Thorns. I'm going to give you a lot of points for this one. It wasn't 2 to nothing; It was one nothing. but you basically nailed this game too. So I think, I, what did I give you, 23 points for the Sky Blue? I'm going to give you 15.8 for this one. Um, when you're not dead on the score, it's hard to go too high, but yeah. I still think you should get a lot of points for this one. Um, I'm going to give myself a nice big zero. My um, my favorite pick, Ana Maria Cernogorshevich, scoring a goal. She has scored five goals this year. <laughs> 
But apparently she hasn't ever scored a goal in the 27 times <laughs> I have predicted that she'll score a goal. So Richard gets a big fat zero for this one. And, you know, this is the give and take of these side bets. Somebody complains when I give myself high points when I finally nail one. It is not easy to nail these side bets, Jamie Goldberg. It's basically a Goldberg zero or a Goldberg 90 for me at all <laughs> times. Just let me live with this, okay? Reviewing the spirit game. Look, we have a couple of other notes down here. We've talked about this before. Uh, these notes before, at least. It's basically the sky blue stuff. It's like, good win is a good enough, blah, blah. We just talked about yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, I want to see this team, you know, get the second goal and, and put a game away. I think 6-0 versus 3-0 versus 2-0, not a huge difference. I would like to see them do more, but yeah, you're right. It's a dominant performance. Um, at least in the sky blue game, they held the 2-0 lead for a while, so it it felt a little bit less scary <laughs> throughout <laughs> it. But at the same time, it didn't all look like the spirit were going to, to get back into this game. Um, Absolutely. And I think what everybody wants to talk about is Haley yeah. Ross was injury so um just some podcasting hygiene here for people that didn't see it Haley rosso got battered around a bit on saturday even before the injury that took her out that injury basically saw her putting herself in position to play a lofted ball at the edge of washington's 18 yard box just inside of it aubrey bledsoe comes up to catch the ball she elevates in the process of doing so her knees go into Haley rosso's back Haley rosso ends up with I don't even remember the terminology for this, but she has injuries to four of the kind of arms that extend out from so your vertebrae. L2. Yeah, the L2, L1, and L4, I think. I don't know, but basically she has four discs in her back that are hurt right now. Um, you can call it a broken back. It is in one form a broken back. She's basically out for the year at this point, barring some kind of unforeseen recovery. The usual timeline recovery for this is four to six weeks. But that's only when you can start getting... They wrote, I think, six to eight weeks. Six, well, it's four to six weeks just to heal. But then you need yeah. another two weeks to actually get back into physical shape. So she's probably going to take even longer than that because the season will be over at that point. So we have a big issue to talk about here. Uh, but first, let's talk about the actual mechanics of the situation. Because Brian, and Brian representing a lot of Thorns fans, asked, was the Rosso injury a freak accident or a case of keepers being overprotected? Sure looked like endangering the safety to me. Also includes Sonnet getting punched in the face last week. That happening against Sky Blue, Kalen Sheridan, two fists right to Sonnet's first two eyeballs. So, Jamie, I asked the question, so you have to go first or else I'm talking for too long. Yeah, I, it's it's tough because I think in both these cases, obviously, the keeper's just trying to go for the ball. And it's, they're not trying to intentionally endanger the safety of opponent. And in both cases, they sh at the same time are ultimately endangering the safety of opponent. I think fouls could be called. I think that the fact that they weren't is interesting. Um, but I also do understand that this, this is a matter of two players trying to go for the ball. You, but you do look at the you know, the rest of the field and it is different. I mean, the way goalkeepers are treated and, and sort of the motions goalkeepers are making that could potentially endanger opponents in, in a different way than you have when you're not using your arms to punch into people or jumping in the air in the same way with the expectation that you're um, going to be able to use your hands. Um, it can potentially lead to more injuries in this case. So I, I feel like I have mixed emotions on, 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 both these plays uh, and I do think fouls could be called but ultimately that doesn't change these are these are plays the keepers are going to make and, and these are sort of freak accidents in both games luckily Sonnet didn't get hurt 
but but this is it doesn't really change ultimately what what happened to Rosso. That type of play I think is going to continue to happen no matter what because that's how a keeper goes up for a ball when they're trying to go for it. And it's just really unfortunate at, at, after her recovery this season, after coming back, after getting to the point where I think she was playing really well again and was really important in this team, the Thorns are now going to have to uh, be without her and she's going to have a, a decent length recovery back. Well, you're a lot more measured about this than I am um, by being... Um, I, by kind of seeing both of these scenarios through the same lens, because I think a lot of people are seeing them, to me, these are two very different situations. The Rosso play wasn't a foul. It just wasn't. Rosso was going into Bledsoe as much as Bledsoe was coming out. Rosso was in a situation where she was more susceptible to injury. That's unfortunate. That's not Aubrey Bledsoe's fault. She used the same technique that everybody uses to go up for a ball, and it led to an injury. Sometimes that happens in sports. Like, Bledsoe did nothing out of the ordinary to endanger Rosso. I mean, I don't even want to talk about that in the same breath that I want to talk about Kaylin Sheridan. So every, anytime a goalkeeper elects to punch, go for a punch, they have to take responsibility for their actions. I think anytime you connect with a player's head with a punch, you should be red carded. Because to me, if they're not red carded, that tells me the sport isn't taking concussions and head injuries seriously. That punch, you don't have to go with that technique. You can go with an open hand. You can go with an open hand to try to catch the ball. You can go with an open hand to try to push the ball. You can go with an open hand just recognizing that somebody's face is in front of you. There should never be an excuse to punch somebody in the head. Like, bottom line. Now, if you want to say this is something that soccer has done for years and this is a risk that players take, let's stop and say, let's not put players at this risk. Emily Sonic got punched in her eyeballs by two fists. There's no sport besides boxing and MMA where that should be something that's just woven into the fabric of our viewing experience, of their playing experience. It's not something when Emily Sonnet or any other player steps on the field should have to consider when they're playing soccer. That should be a red card. Every time a goalkeeper closes their fist and goes for a ball, they should be taking that risk into their hand and they should consider that risk when they elect to do that. And we see other goalkeepers, they go for punches when there's nobody really around to get their hand. A lot of times when they go for a punch, their hand is the highest thing there. It's above people's heads. There's no real risk there. Kaylin Sheridan punched at chest level. She should have been red carded. She should have been suspended beyond that. That's an egregious foul play in my mind. I don't want to make it sound like Kaylin Sheridan like is this big malicious person. She did the same thing a lot of other goalkeepers would have done. Those goalkeepers need to stop doing that, period. Otherwise, we're saying we don't care enough about everybody else's safety, and we just want goalkeepers to be able to punch a ball. That's not an even trade-off. And I want to say, too, that this is the third game in a row where a thorn has been fouled, not fouled, but put in a dangerous situation in the box and nothing has come of it. I don't think Haley Rosso's situation was a foul. I definitely think Emily Sana's situation was a foul. And then the week before, Casey Short went with a shoulder through Lindsay mm-hmm. Horan's back on a cross. And Lindsay Horan's, her, her ponytail does a whole 360 as her head gets whiplash back and forth. And it's like... Is she hurt? Like, you really think she's probably concussed at that point and she just gets up and goes to the sideline at some point. In general, beyond goalkeepers, we need to take these situations way more seriously. Like, even as fans and journalists, we're looking on this like, oh, that's just part of the game. Sometimes it is. When Aubrey Bledsoe is doing nothing but elevating for a ball and her knees go into somebody's back, it's as innocuous as a lot of other plays on the field where players get hurt. That happens. When Emily Sonic gets punched in the face... Or when Lindsay Horan has a shoulder to her between her shoulder blades and has her head snap back, we need to construct a context for the sport where all of those things are unacceptable. Casey Short needs to not go for that ball if somebody is between her and the ball, and if she does, she needs to be punished for it. Kaylin Sheridan needs to not use that technique if somebody's head is at chest level, and if she does, she should be punished for it. 
So obviously I've been thinking about this a lot. Yeah, no, I think that, I think those were actually good points that maybe you should have gone first. You convinced me a little bit on that. (laughs) I I think that I think part of what you allude to, you know, is the rules, you know, aren't necessarily clear on this though. And it's, that's part of the problem, which is why I'm saying, yeah, maybe they could have been fouls, but you see this, you you see this and yeah, we shouldn't, we should at least not see the punching. Um, (laughs) Something that I didn't think we'd ever have to say on this podcast. We should at least not see the punching. You know, when I first started covering this game 10 years ago, it was during a time where there was a lot more tolerance for players just going hard into tackles, just being like, Oh, that's, you know, that's the game. And I used to say this a lot. Anytime you do something on the field without regard for your opponent's safety, you're, you're out of line. You're di- being disrespectful to your opponents. You're being disrespectful to your peers who, are, who need to have a certain level of safety from their players around them just to know that that time they step on the field is highly likely not to be their last. But if you have somebody sliding into knees all the time just going, well, that's the way the game's supposed to be played. No. This game is supposed to be played so we can all walk off of here in, <laughs> in two hours. And when somebody gets punched in the face, that dynamic is thrown off. Look, I'm going to speak for a soccer main in Portland here. Don't punch people in the face. <laughs> you want to move on to talking about this big Seattle game that's coming in a couple weeks? Yeah, and I, I think within the Seattle game, we should talk about what the Thorns are going to do without I, Haley Rasso as well. Yeah, I, so that's good that you brought us back to that because I think there's a very clear answer, but I think it's one that needs to spelled out, be spelled out because people are logically asking what's going to happen without Haley Rasso. She has, I think, t- she had, I think, two goals in 12 games or 11 games. I can't remember off the top of my head. Two goals and an assist. But running some of the numbers this week, she was one of the most influential th- Thorns when they're on the field. There's uh, the goal difference in terms of increase in offensive production and also increase in defensive efficiency when she's on the field, apparently because they're able to pin opponents deeper when she's on the field. It's it's demonstrable at this point. So losing her is a big deal. Um, I think what's probably going to happen is you're going to see Caitlin Ford and Anna Maria Sonogorcevic in the starting uh, attack with uh, Tobin Heath. The question yep. is, what do you think they should do? Well, yeah, I, I think that's the obvious answer. I think the timing, um, if, if you can say timing is is good or well on any of this, obviously it's not. But in terms of where Caitlin Ford's at, uh, that's beneficial for the Thorns because she should be at the point where she can be consistently starting at this point, especially mm-hmm. with two weeks off to get a little bit more up in her fitness and, and make sure she's 100% And the Australians are not going away. Yeah. And so that's important. So. Sorry to cut you off. Uh, we forgot to mention that the U.S. internationals, in addition to Christine Sinclair and Anna Maria Sernogorsovic and Andrew Senior, are away on international break right now. The Australians did not call in a team, so uh, Caitlin Ford and Ellie Carpenter are here to train with the team. This yeah, week. which I think is beneficial as well. So I, I think it, it, she's probably at the point where she can go, if if not ninety, close to ninety, and so that's going to be an easier transition for the thorns to probably just put caitlin ford in the starting lineup i think likely she'll be a little bit of the wider player um she has uh the background of playing uh, as a wide player you don't think anna's Um, gonna move wide i mean i think anna also has the background of playing as a wide player so it's not both of them have played as outside backs swing backs so it's possible for each um i think we're gonna see the dynamic like we saw with rosso where they would switch off yeah there were times when the team wanted to up their pressing intensity and they moved Rosso up to a nine and Anna Maria go to the right. I think it's going to be much the same except yeah. for Ford profiles more of a nine than Rosso does. So it's probably going to seem a little less weird. Yeah. I think, I think it is, I guess, interchangeable. Um, but yeah, I, I, I see it. I think what it does is it obviously puts the thorns in where their attacking depth is not the same. Uh, you lose Haley Rosso. 
yeah. uh, both from the starting lineup and in terms of depth coming off the bench. Before they have either Caitlin Ford or Sonia Gorsovich coming off the bench, that's a that's a huge weapon to have. Thorns are not going to have something like that in the attack, at least to that degree of talent. They do absolutely have players that can come in in that position, but they lose something uh, overall. Yeah, I think there are a couple, a couple of other options that we need to talk about that were not mentioned because... I think Jamie and I both see these as unlikely options. We have seen Ellie Carpenter this year start at right wing. That certainly is an option. It seems unlikely given that Ellie Carpenter seems pretty entrenched at right back. We've seen Mitch Purse this year start at right wing too. That maybe seems like slightly more of an option since uh, Mitch Purse right now looks like she's on the outside looking in at the starting 11. Although Mitch Purse did start at left back this week in place of a late scratch Megan Klingenberg. It looks like that's not going to be her regular position and also looks like that's far less likely at least in terms of her starting at right wing, than Anna Maria Cernogorsevich and Caitlin Ford. And the other thing that you just alluded to is just the bench. When everybody was healthy, it was very clear what the three subs were most likely to be. It was going to be either Anna Maria Cernogorsevich or Caitlin Ford, whoever's not starting, Mitch Purse and Andrew Senior. Those are the three big names off the bench. Now, one of those goes in the starting lineup. We kind of suspect who it's going to be. And I would suspect Tyler Lucy is going to be the person that is going to be more likely to get time. Why that really matters is that once the Seattle game is done on September 7th, the Thorns are facing potential 120-minute scenarios. So now we're not just talking about Tyler Lucy coming in and killing off a game over the last seven minutes or four minutes. We're potentially, based on player fatigue, talking about her for a half an hour. If everything works out, I don't think that's Mark Parsons' plan, but we are talking about her being the person that would have to step into a bigger role if that happens. Now, the good news is that Tyler Lucy quietly has been fairly good this year. Uh, the team has scored seven goals when she's on the field this year. They've only allowed three. Most of those are in scenarios where it's late game situations and not exactly indicative of how a game would play out if it happened to be 2-2 in the 110th minute. But I do think Tyler Lucy has been better than most people have noticed this year, better than I've noticed this year. So I don't think it's the worst case scenario ever. We'll definitely see. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the Seattle game uh, and then get some questions. Uh, obviously, the Thorns aren't playing this week, uh, so we have no predictions, but they will host Seattle in uh, win and host a semifinal playoff game. Um, to keep it simple, uh, if, that, if they win that game, they will host a semifinal playoff game at Providence Park the next week. The game is the game will take place on September 7th. Uh, going through the other scenarios, though, I, just to clarify for fans, a few you, people asked. You, by the way, are an angel. Like, <laughs> when people were, like, going through everything, and you just had to remind them that, like, no, this is not guaranteed a first of two games. When the subtext is of that is just look at the standings. Yeah. Add a six to Chicago's total, and you can see why this isn't the given that you think it is. Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> the Thorns will play Seattle on the final day of the regular season. If they win, they will play Seattle again uh, in the semifinals, and they will host that game. If they lose, they could drop to third and go to Seattle. They could also drop to fourth and... Uh, worst case scenario, go to North Carolina. I think <laughs> the Thorns, I, I think any team right now would absolutely want to avoid that game. Um, that'll depend on Chicago's form and, and whether Chicago is going into that weekend with that chance. We still have to see um, if Chicago, uh, who has two more games, not one, can pick up the points prior to that weekend to even be in a position. We where... should talk about this next week. Well, sh- just so people know, Chicago's last two games are at home against Sky Blue, which is a makeup game for a game that was canceled earlier this year. And then they go to Utah. Two games they are going to be favored in. Yes. I really suspect that Rory Dames is going to rest his team for that Utah game. Because if they beat Sky Blue, 
I think they're at least guaranteed fourth at that point. I think it's going to depend because that final game of the season comes after the Thorns game. The Thorns play Friday. Chicago plays Saturday. And so I think Chicago is going to be looking. I, I think yeah. they're going to be looking, see what's our, what are our possibilities going to this game. And if they have a chance to avoid going to North Carolina with a win, I think they'll go all out in that Utah game. Yeah, maybe you're right. But I remember last year when Rory came in here, benched his team. Didn't pan game out. <laughs> no, they, went to, they were a deflected goal away from beating North Carolina. I mean, that... Him resting his team really helped. <laughs> and he's going to have players coming back. They're going to have to fly straight to Utah to meet them because they're going to be released middle of that week because they're going to, the core of his team is going to be on international break. Yep. It's, this, it's a very similar scenario to last year. And he's going to have to look at it like, look, do I want to go all out and for the difference between going to Seattle, Portland, or North Carolina, or do I want to play a longer game here where maybe I do elect to go to North Carolina, but I actually go there with a rested team? And we saw what he chose last year. Yeah, I mean, I mean we'll see. I think that I think Chicago would like to go to Portland. I, I, I think if that's an option, they'd be. Um, although I guess that couldn't happen. They couldn't go to Portland no, because Portland be, would have to fall. So right. it would be Seattle or North Carolina. Yeah, maybe they don't see a big difference out. I'm not sure. I also think this year there's more pressure on on Chicago to finally win a playoff game too. So I, that's those are the scenarios. Those are the push and pull factors. I also just think that Rory Dames is the type of coach that'll be like, look, this is a very clear scenario for me. I want to make it to the playoffs. We're in the playoffs. Once I'm there, I want the best team, and we eventually have to we eventually have to beat the best teams anyway. So I'm just going to get my team healthy. And to be honest. It's not that terrible logic, uh, but you also see the other point of view. Um, let's go to some listener questions now. Donna asks, are you, Jamie, and Richard still going with 30 to 35% probability of the Thorns getting a home playoff game? I'll go first here. Uh, no, I, I think it's better than that, but I don't think it's much that much better than that. Seattle has beaten the Thorns twice this year. They One of those wins was at Providence Park. I think Seattle's main concern is health issues. Megan Rapino is probably doubtful for that game. They've been missing Ali Long lately. They've been missing Rumi Atsugi lately. That being said, that same hampered team almost beat North Carolina three days ago. And the Thorns will be having players coming in just from international duty as well. So Absolutely. that will be a factor. Look, I mean, like I think if these two teams played, they're so close that they would probably, for every win, you're going to get a draw, you're going to get a loss for each team. I think the Thorns have to be bumped up a little bit because they're at home, but I would say that they're probably a 40 to 45% chance of winning that game. I think there's probably a 40, 45% chance that there's a draw too in that game. And both those scenarios mean that the Thorns go to Seattle the week after. Yeah, I'll give it 45%. I think the Thorns are really going to be just be up for this game, but ultimately the chance of a draw um, pushes it down from a 50-50. I, I think ultimately Seattle has the edge here. But I, I expect the Thorns, uh, given how they've been playing, given the way, direction they're going, the international duty and having those players come back will be a factor. But I, I think that they're in a better spot now than when they previously played for Seattle. Absolutely. Oh, definitely. I, the only other thing I will add is that Seattle has the best defense in the league. 16 goals allowed in 23 games. If you're telling me they can't get a shutout, in Providence Park against a Thorns team that we're seeing sometimes isn't that dynamic attack that I thought that they would be. That's not surprising to me at all. And a zero zero means Seattle gets the next game at home. Let's go to, ah, yes. One of my favorite parts of the show predictions, predictions for the coming week's game for the first time in a while. We don't have three games to predict, but that's only because the Thorns are off. We do have two Timbers games to predict. And let's start with today's game. Timbers versus Toronto FC. Jamie, 
mean, some people might listen to it tonight. Wednesday's game. Let's say oh, Wednesday's that's right. game. Shout out to you people that, <laughs> that are subscribed and listen to on Tuesday. We love yeah. you. You guys are our favorites. <laughs> um, I'm going to predict a 1-1 draw. And uh, as you mentioned... Um, kind of my predictions this week might be based on a faulty, potentially faulty knowledge on what I think he's going to do in terms of rotation. Yeah. But we will see. Um, we'll I'm going to interrupt you because it's faulty, but it's the best that people can do. Yeah. So we don't know. Um, if if Savarese rotates his lineup differently than I expect, then my prediction might turn out to the way I'm approaching this week might turn out to be a little bit different. But I'm not super confident going this game at the same time. I, I think that the Timbers are going to be really motivated to, to end their streak uh, and their losing streak and are going to have a pretty good lineup out there. And I'm going to go with the Sebastian Blanco goal. This isn't going to be one that's going to get me 40 some points if it comes good, although maybe it should because it's been a while and the Timbers <laughs> have been having some trouble scoring goals. Maybe any Timbers goal at this point should get me one. I actually did think of just my side bet would be the Timbers scoring a goal. But look, I'm, the team is taking it to heart at this point that they couldn't convert against Seattle. They know what the final part of the equation is. It's stepping forward and making the right decisions and doing that extra bit to execute. And when I think of players who are most likely to take that most to heart, in addition to the fact that he didn't play central midfield last game, he played one of the attacking roles. I'm going with Sebastian Blanco. Next game, three days later, Timbers at New England. A depleted Portland team goes to the concrete carpet of Gillette Stadium. Jamie Goldberg, your prediction. Yeah, that's sort of how I'm viewing it. Um, it seems like you aren't viewing it the same way. What? I, Spoiler. I'm predicting, Do yeah. not look below your line <laughs> on the notes. Wow. I, I Just a teaser, right? Not a, not a spoiler. You're just going to change it. <laughs> I'm going to predict the Timbers 2-0 loss. I think that they are going to just be gassed in this game. And, I, and if they're not, they're going to have to rotate too much to, to be able to and deal with the travel. There's just too many factors for me um, going into the third game in seven days. So 2-0 loss. Well, you're giving points next week, so I hope you remember that when the Timbers score multiple goals in this game, I don't know if they're going to win, I don't know if they're going to lose, but when they actually break out in this game, when they use that New England pressure against them, when they just play in a way that has some urgency that realizes it's going to be a tough game, that takes all the focus that goes into that and produces a good performance against a decent team, but not a great one. I would say maybe a below average one that just has some stylistic challenges. I think the Timbers, I think the Timbers are going to break through. We've seen them use other teams' aggressiveness against them earlier uh, at other points this year. I think that's what's going to happen at Gillette Stadium. So at least two Timbers goals. And I expect to get like 73 points if that comes good. <laughs> because when was the last time we saw a Timbers attack where it really felt like they were going to score multiple goals and w- without penalty kicks? Well, maybe penalty kicks is my secret. Either way, yeah. that's my prediction. Yeah, we'll see. Maybe, maybe if they get it on two penalty kicks, we'll have to... I'm taking it. <laughs> might change my opinion the, on how many points. Okay, though. maybe 71 points. <laughs> all right. That, that's all for today. Um, Except for the fantasy update before we sign off. Not uh, skipping that again. Yes. We're not going to forget that one this time. Um, Beer City FC is not in the top three. Oh, my God. Cancel this show. Yeah, I, I, I purposely didn't tell you to land because I was nervous that you this would just is what, walk out. This is what Timbers fans felt like when <laughs> that Cascante goal went in. I, now I empathize with fans. I'm just crushed right now. Yeah. Um, I don't have the full standings in front of me, just the top three. So I, But given the last few weeks, I'm, I'm sure... We'll see. Maybe you can get back in there. But our top three, um, Meteor FC at 399 points, Hebrew Steel at 404 points, and Blood Bath 
blood. Maybe maybe it's the common dude. Okay, that was a one-time joke. <laughs> Let's not make this into a theme. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, blood, Bath, and Beyond at 415 points is in first place. And uh, now the actual end of the show. Um, that's all for today. We're Soccer Made in Portland. You can find us every week on Stumptown Footy, uh, Timbers.com, and Oregon Live. Or you can subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. And until next week, take care. <laughs>